I'm Toby Logsdon, and this is your weekly fix of wisdom on BibleStudyPodcasts.org. In Proverbs chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, Solomon writes, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. A few times prior to this point in the book of Proverbs, Solomon has told us about the importance of the fear of the Lord. Quickly going through those verses, we find, first of all, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's from chapter 1, verse 7. Then in chapter 1, verse 29, Solomon told us that the fool hated knowledge and therefore didn't choose to experience the fear of the Lord. Solomon then told us that if you search for wisdom like you would search for a hidden treasure, you'll discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. That's from chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Then in chapter 8, verse 13, Solomon told us that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And in chapter 9, verse 10, he reminded us again that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. In chapter 10, verse 27, he told us that the fear of the Lord will prolong one's life. And now, here in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26, Solomon tells us that there is strong confidence in having the fear of the Lord and that his children will have refuge. What are we putting our trust in? That's the question. What are we putting our trust in? See, we trust in all kinds of things. We trust that a seat is going to be strong enough to withstand our weight when we sit on it. We trust that the brakes are going to work properly when we hit the accelerator to move forward in a car. Uh, We trust that the bank will use our money wisely so that the funds are still there when we go to remove them. See, trust is huge, but the fact of the matter is that it's possible for our trust to be violated in just about every situation. The chair can break. The brakes on the car might go out. The bank might loan out all of our money and thus be unable to return our deposited funds to us. See, all of these things happen pretty frequently. So how much confidence are you putting in them? The point I'm trying to get at here is that we normally trust all of those things to work and we put a lot of confidence in them. That's not a bad thing. But the point is how much more we can trust in God when we have a healthy fear of him. Solomon moves on to tell us that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, meaning that our fear of him will help us avoid the snares of death. You see, the fear of the Lord gives us a humble spirit and a teachable attitude. If we have a healthy fear for God, a respectful fear for God, we're going to trust him enough to follow his leading. The psalmist wrote, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. That's from Psalm chapter 37, verses 30 and 31. For example, if you've ever seen the television show Man vs. Wild, it's one of my favorite shows. The host is a guy named Bear Grylls. The show's basically just Bear showing us how to survive in the most unlikely, uh, unbelievably tough conditions. They recently had a show in which a couple of fans who won the opportunity to take on the wild with Bear were featured. And the only reason that they survived is because Bear knew how to survive. And they followed closely after him as he guided them through these glacial fields with these huge hidden crevasses. This is similar to the picture that Solomon's painting for us here in this passage. The idea here that Solomon wants us to hold on to is that life is like a field full of landmines. If you're walking through a field full of landmines, you want to be following someone who can either withstand the explosions so that you don't have to, or who knows how to avoid the landmines altogether. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 28, Solomon writes, In a multitude of people is a king's honor, but in the lack of people is the downfall of a prince. 
The king who has a highly populated country is more likely to have a large army. The larger a country's army is, the more powerful that army is likely to be. The more powerful the army is, the safer the people within the country will probably be. This was something that Solomon knew all too well. Israel wasn't a huge country, nor was it heavily populated. The countries which neighbored Israel, however, were huge and powerful. Egypt, for example, had the most powerful army in the region, but Syria and Moab were also powerful. David's answer was to challenge anyone and everyone who dared to step into the ring with Israel, so to speak. He destroyed all challengers. He gave Israel the reputation as a country that nobody would want to mess around with. King David is still highly regarded and respected by Israel to this very day. Now, while David was conquering on the battlefield, Solomon was a prince. And Solomon's idea was to pursue peace with Israel's neighbors. He just wasn't the physical warrior that his father, King David, was. So he married one of the Pharaoh's daughters, which turned out to be a disastrous mistake. Truth be told, Israel didn't need a huge army to begin with. They never did. And Solomon didn't need to compromise the values that he should have been clinging to. God had promised to protect Israel if Israel would simply trust in him and abide by the covenant that Moses had made with God. Israel's best defense wasn't weapons. It wasn't to build a powerful army. Her best defense was to trust in the Lord and abide in the covenant. This concludes Lesson 1. Lesson 2. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29, Solomon writes, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Someone once said, temper gets you into trouble, pride keeps you there. The point of that saying is that if there's a time that we're most likely to do something utterly stupid and thoughtless, it's when we've let our temper get the best of us. People who have a short fuse don't end up having a lot of good friends. I remember being in about ninth grade and hearing the story about a kid I went to school with getting upset about something that was honestly just kind of ridiculous and how he subsequently smashed one of his friends in the back of his friend's head with a cast. His friend had brain damage that was going to last for the rest of his life. So this guy went from being a kid who had a lot of energy and being really friendly to being nearly catatonic at times because he was so afraid of people. The kid who did the damage to him had a short fuse. He had a short temper. And there is nothing that his friend could have possibly done to deserve a lifetime of brain damage. But that's the type of thing that can happen when someone makes a stupid decision because they've got a short fuse to their temper. Not surprisingly, people became hesitant to look at or say, much less befriend, this kid who had the problem with his temper. And he ended up getting mixed up in the wrong crowd and ended up going to prison before long. Now, we're not encouraged to be slow to anger for some pointless reason. We'll save ourselves from making a lot of stupid mistakes if we will just take the time to humble ourselves and really think through something that's angering us before we decide to act on it. Oftentimes, our anger is caused by our own misunderstandings of things or by miscommunication with somebody else. It's better to allow our emotions to settle and then go to someone with the intention of doing whatever's necessary to resolve the issue. 
Paul wrote to the church at Rome, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. That's from Romans chapter 12, verse 18. So we're instructed to live in peace with everyone, and that will entail slowing down, resisting the urge to act on emotions, and working things out with others who we feel may have sinned against us in some way. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30, Solomon writes, A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. If we were to take this verse by itself, it would be really easy for us to think that Solomon's telling us that passion is a bad thing. The thing that should prevent us from making such an absolute conclusion like that is the previous verse, which talked about the foolishness of acting impulsively rather than being slow to anger. God designed us to be passionate people, and it would take more than a wild stretch of the imagination for us to think that people like Moses and David were not passionate in their love for God. They absolutely were. David was so passionate for God, he was called a man after God's own heart. So passion can be a very good and very admirable thing when it's found in the proper context. In the context we have here, however, it's not such a good thing. The person who has a short fuse is going to be, by nature, a passionate person. The smallest offense can be like trying to put out a fire by dousing it with gasoline. The type of passion being referred to here is a jealous passion, a coveting passion. And that's the type of thing that causes a person to lose sleep at night or to develop ulcers and other health conditions which can end a person's life prematurely. This type of person is contrasted with the person whose heart is characterized by tranquility. The heart that isn't stirred by passionate jealousy belongs to a person who sleeps well and doesn't act impulsively. Solomon tells us that this type of heart is life to the body because a heart that's full of peace is a heart that will most likely last a lot longer than a passionately jealous heart. As paraphrased in the New Living Translation, a relaxed attitude lengthens life, jealousy rots it away. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31, Solomon writes, He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. There's a very sad tendency within humanity to have a dog-eat-dog mentality. It's with this mentality that some people feel like they need to do everything they possibly can to prevent anyone and everyone they view as inferior to themselves from passing them up. People like this existed in Solomon's day just as surely as they exist in our day and age. In fact, you may even have someone in mind right now who fits this description. The Bible teaches that all people are made in the image of God. Of God, however, and thus by oppressing anyone who has less than we do, we would be oppressing a person whom God loves as deeply as he loves us. Mistreating and oppressing the poor is therefore an insult to the one who created them and who loves them and cares deeply for them and died for them. On the flip side, that type of oppressive person is contrasted with the person who's gracious to the poor. This person who's gracious to the poor honors God with their gracious actions and attitude. This reminds me of Cornelius, who believed in God and was gracious in giving alms to the poor regularly. By doing so, he was honoring God. And it was perhaps for that reason that God sent an angel to instruct Cornelius to go and meet Peter so that Cornelius could hear and be saved by the gospel message. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 32, Solomon writes, the wicked is thrust down by his wrongdoing, but the righteous has a refuge when he dies. See, death is a scary thing for a lot of people. We'd much rather talk about happier things like life. Maybe that's why Solomon hasn't really said much about the righteous dying someday. 
But the reality is that everyone will have a day when they come face to face with death, unless they're raptured, like Enoch and Elijah were. Solomon tells us that the righteous have a refuge when they die, which is in heaven, a place where evil and sin can never and will never exist. With that reality in mind, Paul wrote, Where, O death, is your sting? For the wicked, on the other hand, death is a horrible event, because their time for getting things straight with God has passed. And it's too late. Solomon tells us that they will be thrust down by their own wrongdoing. For the righteous, this world is as close to hell as they'll ever come. But for the wicked, this world is the closest to heaven that they'll ever come. We should live in light of that truth. This concludes Lesson 2. Lesson 3. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 33, Solomon writes, Wisdom rests in the heart of one who has understanding, but in the hearts of fools it is made known. It would be difficult for someone to miss the fact that wisdom, who is personified for much of the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, plays a huge role in this book. Sometimes Solomon refers to wisdom in kind of a general sense, a general characteristic, and sometimes he portrays wisdom as a voice which calls out to everyone, inviting them to learn from her. Our job then, as readers, when we see the word wisdom, is to figure out which sense Solomon is referring to wisdom in. That's pretty tricky in this particular verse. We can start by noticing that wisdom is, for at least a season, with both the person who has understanding and the person who is foolish at heart. The thing we should catch, however, is that wisdom stays in the heart or rests in the heart of the person with understanding, but that it doesn't stay with the foolish at heart. Instead, wisdom is simply made known in the heart of the fool. The Bible teaches that God's existence is obvious, and I firmly believe that everyone, atheists included, everyone knows that God exists in their hearts. It's possible, however, for the mind and the will to completely ignore and veto what the heart says. For that reason, wisdom, who is personified and represents Jesus in this context, rests and abides with those who respond to the calling. And it's this presence that can cause even the most jealous and envious heart to experience the tranquility that Solomon told us about back in verse 30. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, Solomon writes, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to people. History clearly shows that the first people from Europe to colonize in America had the intention of creating communities that glorified God and trusted in Jesus. In the conditions of the Mayflower Compact, which was signed by 41 of the male passengers from the Mayflower, they wrote, quote, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these present solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civic body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. End quote. Into the following generations, a love of God motivated people to build educational institutions for the purpose of educating people so that they could more fully understand and worship the one true God. No doubt about it, this was, at one time, 
a very righteous nation. It wasn't long, however, before this country became deeply corrupted as the people of the United States prospered and began to worship the land and the ideology and the principles that this country was built on. The more prosperous and powerful this country became, the less important God seemed. The nation which was once exalted eventually became a disgrace as deconstructionist philosophy permeated our courts so thoroughly that prayer was no longer allowed in the classrooms. Now our country is filled with a godlessness that hasn't been seen since the height of the Roman Empire. Sin is everywhere. Pornography is available at the click of a button. The genocide of world dictators like Hitler, Stalin, and Mao Zedong, whose atheistic regimes murdered tens of millions of people, all of those things are nothing in comparison to the number of children who have been murdered, slaughtered in this country in the name of the almighty rights of a mother. Our country, which was founded on righteous principles but ended up turning away from those principles, is now a disgrace to everyone who loves righteousness. The history of America is a perfect illustration of the principle that Solomon is drawing us to in this verse. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 35, Solomon writes, The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. Solomon uses this imagery to communicate the result of the previous verse. It's possible, if not extremely likely, that the king being mentioned to here in this verse is none other than God himself, and that the servant in this verse represents the nation as a whole. Now, it's undeniable that God's favor was upon the founders of this country, as the people who drew up the Bill of Rights and the Constitution were very godly men, by and large. While it's been argued that the majority of the founding fathers were deists, the truth is that the quote-unquote founding fathers is a proper noun as it refers to a very specific group of men, those who served as delegates to the Constitutional Convention. The quote-unquote founding fathers was a group of 55 men. Among these delegates were 28 Episcopalians, 8 Presbyterians, 7 Congregationalists, 2 Lutherans, 2 Dutch Reformed, 2 Methodists, and 2 Roman Catholics. So if you do the math, that adds up to... 51 members of the Founding Fathers who were devoted followers of Jesus. Of the remaining four, one was unknown in terms of his religious affiliation, and three, Franklin, Williamson, and Williams, were professing deists. As author and apologist Greg Kokel notes, quote, "...virtually every person involved in the founding enterprise of the United States was a God-fearing Protestant whose theology, in today's terms, would be described as evangelical or fundamentalist." End quote. For the United States to have gone from nothing to a world power in the matter of a few short centuries required nothing less than godly wisdom, which in turn earned God's favor. Just for the sake of clarification, we should note that God's favor isn't necessarily the same as salvation. God can give favor to a nation as a whole, but salvation through faith in Jesus will always be at the individual level. But you know, those days of America being a nation with God's favor upon us are over. And God's favor is far removed from this once godly nation. In the previous verse, Solomon told us that sin is a disgrace to the people. Here in this verse, Solomon tells us that God's anger is toward the servant, that is, the nation, who acts shamefully. As sin has become more and more rampant and more widely accepted in the name of tolerance, it's no wonder that our nation is so closely resembling Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Over time, our country has become more and more deserving of God's anger, wrath, and judgment. We've been deceived and drawn away from God by the glitter of prosperity and materialism. What we need is more than pat, formulaic answers. What we need is wisdom, friends, and it starts with us as followers of Jesus. This concludes Lesson 3. Lesson 4. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1, Solomon writes, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There's a pretty strong possibility that this verse should be read in light of the previous verse, in which Solomon told us that the king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. The two verses seem to be connected by the word anger. For the person who acts shamefully by sinning, how can they avoid the consequences of the king's anger? Solomon tells us that it's with a gentle answer. The contrast here is not only between outcomes, though, it's also between reactions. If a person's reaction to somebody else being angry at them is to humble themselves and respond to accusations with a spirit of gentleness and humility, there's an increased probability of receiving mercy. It's almost instinctive for us to want to show mercy toward those who are willing to humbly and gently offer an apology. On the other hand, the person who reacts to someone else being angry with them by speaking harshly has an increased chance of receiving an increased wrath against them. That's exactly what the term stirred up means. It means to increase or extend. If someone is angry with us, and especially if God is angry with us, the last thing we should want to do is increase that anger. It would be good for us to notice that over the past few verses, characteristics such as peacefulness, tranquility, and gentleness have been highlighted. We would do well to observe and embody those characteristics ourselves as well. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 2, Solomon writes, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. Here we have yet another proverb underlining the importance and consequences of what comes out of a person's mouth. In this verse, the distinction between the wise and the foolish is seen in what comes out of their mouths. So let's start by taking a look at what comes from the mouth of the fool. Solomon uses kind of a comical word to describe what comes from the mouth of a fool. He says that their mouth spouts folly. Now this word spouts brings up the image of rushing water or, or liquid, something that isn't really restrained or controlled. The idea, then, is that their foolishness is uncontrollable. It's unrestrained. The wise person, on the other hand, is accurate in what is spoken because the wise person is sure to have all the facts straight before they utter anything. The wise person knows that rushing to a conclusion in the heat of the moment will inevitably lead to huge mistakes, even when timeliness is an issue. The knowledge which comes from the tongue of the wise person is made acceptable because the person has taken the time and put forth the energy and the effort to make their knowledge attractive. Contrary to the foolishness which spouts from the fool's mouth, the knowledge of the wise person is controlled and presented in moderation so that nothing is lost or forgotten. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, Solomon writes, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. There's a really good reason that wisdom and knowledge should proceed from our mouths rather than foolishness spouting from our mouths. And that is the fact that we'll be held accountable for the things that we say. And not only will we be accountable before man, but 
more significantly, will be held accountable before God. This is a verse which clearly demonstrates God's omnipotence. No, God doesn't literally have eyes because God is a spirit, according to John chapter 4, verse 24. God simply knows all. He doesn't need to specifically, quote-unquote, see anything in a literal sense, per se. If he did, well, that would be a lot of information to process. This verse is just telling us that nothing escapes God's notice. Nothing. Further, the implication of the point that Solomon is making here is not only that God is aware of all things, whether they be good or evil, but also that he will judge all things. With that in mind, take the time to consider both sides of every story. Don't rush to speak and end up spouting foolishness. Pray that the Lord would teach you to control what comes from your tongue so that you will clearly and attractively speak truth. And one final thing here. In the midst of all of these verses about speech and what comes from our mouths, why do you think there's this verse about God and what he is aware of? It's because God cares about what comes out of our mouths. That's something for us to consider. In the next verse, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 4, Solomon writes, A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. How many of us have heard the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? You know, we've probably all heard that one in some form or another. It's a really popular, really old saying here in America. Now, I don't know what idiot came up with this saying, but it's one of the stupidest things a person has ever come up with. And if the person who came up with this heard me tell him what an idiot I think he is, I think he or she would probably agree with me that they're wrong because... I'd probably hurt their feelings, right? Well, anyway, Solomon has told us repeatedly in this book that words are powerful, powerful things. We have more power between our teeth than most of us probably realize. In this verse, Solomon tells us that our words have the power to soothe or heal, and our words have the power to crush a person's spirit. Now, I want to give each of you a homework assignment this week. Go out and find someone, someone that you love, and speak soothing words to them. Listen, if you're a parent, I want you to tell your kids that you're proud of them. Seriously, just kind of out of the blue, no matter how old your kids are, tell them that you're proud of them, and then tell them why you're proud of them. I can virtually guarantee you that you will create an impression on them that will last in their minds for the rest of their lives. Wives, do the same with your husbands. Find an opportunity and tell your husband how proud you are of him, and then tell him why. And if you're a husband, get this, if you're a husband, you get bigger homework. Not only do I want you to tell your kids how proud you are of them and why, and not only do I want you to tell your wife that you're proud of her and why, but I want you to tell your wife that you're so happy to be married to her and why. This is more than just a sociology or psychology experiment. If you can learn to do this at least somewhat regularly, I guarantee that this is something that will cause the roots of the relationship that you have with the people you love to grow deeper and stronger. I'm Toby Logsdon, and this has been your weekly fix of wisdom on BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org 
www.thepowerofprayer.org and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus.